This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The weekend edition of Daily Thrones is on the air. Our weekend is Friday through Sunday night. That's right. We enjoy three-day weekends all the time here on Daily Thrones. We've been talking about what resolutions we might want, the big ones and the small ones in Season 8, and just the things we might want to see in Season 8. Little moments. We love those little moments here in Game of Thrones. Do you want to see something cool? Do you want to see Hot Pie with a flaming sword because he is a Zora High reborn? Then maybe that's what you want, and I want to hear from you. Call in now. Call in all through the weekend. Let's have this discussion. Go wild. Go crazy with your theories. Or give me something tiny and small that you want in Season 8. One of the things I want to see in Season 8 is Tormund. Tormund getting a moment with Brienne. Just a moment. I still like the idea of Brienne and Jamie. Maybe Bran and Jamie getting married, but maybe Tormund has one moment with Brienne to express his true feelings. She might still reject him, but I think Tormund, a rough and brusque character, a hard exterior. He is a free folk wilding to the core. I'd like to see him have a tender moment to express his true feelings beyond just eating a piece of chicken suggestively. Maybe that's something we'll get in season eight. See? Small moment. But we also want the big ones. Let me know here on Daily Thrones. Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. I'll probably have some more of these by this weekend, but uh, off the top of my head, I've got both a macro and a micro uh, thing that I would like to see resolved in Game of Thrones. The macro one, I really do want to see the destruction of King's Landing because in science fiction, it is quite acceptable, especially in dystopian societies and other larger franchises, to see entire civilizations wiped out and the cause of that, but you never see that in a fantasy setting and the results of what that would happen, what would happen to the population. Um, the closer you get our large battles, but you never actually see the actual destruction of a city. The, my micro, my micro scene I'd like to see is Cersei breaking down and crying. You almost got that with Aurelia Sand when she was, uh, when Cersei confronted her and she quickly pulled it back together again. But if we ever want to see Cersei even remotely redeemed, we need to see her cry and feel pain. Thanks. Hey, Ken. So I'm going to tie into my previous question about what we want in Season 8. And I'm going to tie it into this conversation we're having about the Night King and him speaking. Um, it's something I didn't know I wanted until it got brought up in conversation between uh, Eric and Kevin. And it's, it's a really good talking point. Um, we don't know why the Night King is doing what he's doing and we need some answers. Uh, we're getting little snippets here and there, some clues about how, where he came from, um, but we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. And there's definitely a connection between the Night King and John, uh, especially at the end of Hardhome. Night King gives John this kind of look. We don't know what, if John's part of a prophecy, if he's the Lord of Light reborn. Um, so I want answers. And I think one of the coolest way we're gonna get answers is if the Night King speaks. Uh, it'd be great to see if there's gonna be some sort of dialogue between him and John uh, to get some answers. Uh, I want it more than just from Maester's books. I, I want the answers from the Night King. 
Hey, Ken. Uh, first off, I just tweeted you uh, something from Entertainment Weekly. Um, Maisie Williams has apparently said that Game of Thrones Season 8 will, will premiere April 2019. And to be honest, I kind of think that's true. I, I predicted it would be... I, that was my prediction, it would be April, because the show premiered April 2011, so, you know, we'll see if that's true, but anyway, something I would want to see in Season 8, you know, I love, we've talked about this before, I love when characters interact who have never interacted before, you know, Lee, Liam Cunningham even joked he would like to have a scene with Cersei, that would be cool, I think what, something that would be kind of cool is to see, actually, Gendry have a scene with Danny. given that Gendry is the son of Robert Baratheon, and, you know, Robert Baratheon, of course, wiped out most of her family and stuff, would she harbor any resentment towards him? Probably not. You know, she seemed to forgive, you know, not harbor too much resentment against John, who was, of course, who she thinks is Ned's son, who, of course, was Robert's best friend. But I think it would be interesting. Weekend edition rolls on here at Daily Thrones, and we've been talking about what we want in Season 8. Well, now we might have a, a little target on when Season 8 is beginning. As Eric mentioned in his call, that we've got uh, Maisie Williams kind of dropping this uh, little uh, information bombshell that the show will premiere in April until HBO announces it. I, I don't call those things confirmed, but that does make sense. And it is kind of poetic in a way. All comes full circle, as Eric said. Uh, 2011, the show begins in April, and now it should end in April. Ooh, almost ominous in its poeticness. Uh, but I like that news. Uh, we have an end in sight, right? A target date. I'm pretty sure that's going to be it. We'll see how that plays out. But you guys had a string of good calls earlier today that I'm catching up with about what we want in Season 8, I've been talking about the big resolutions, the small resolutions, and uh, Kevin uh, had a call there about a uh, big uh, resolution kind of being King's Landing being destroyed, which is, is I think, a pretty good chance that we shall see that. Going back to Season 2, Daenerys Targaryen's uh, little visions in the House of the Undying, which were a lot more detailed in the books, as we know, but in the show, it kind of cuts to the chase, cuts to the point. King's Landing doesn't seem to be faring well, and there's some snow down there in the south in her vision. And I, I, I've always kind of thought, I think a lot of people have thought that we will see the destruction of uh, the Great uh, Red Keep. And uh, we saw the Sept of Baelor for sure go under, thanks to Cersei. But uh, I, I think King's Landing... I think it will finally go under, whether it's plan B, Kevin's theory of luring uh, the White Walkers and Whites down there and wildfiring them in the city. Uh, that could could be the case. Maybe it could be the Night King and his army going down there doing the damage. I think we will see it. And, uh, Kevin, your idea of Cersei Lannister crying and how maybe that would be some kind of uh, resolution, it actually makes sense to me. I always talk about empathy for Cersei. And it's there. You see how some of the things in her life pushed her into this direction. Is she completely innocent? No, absolutely not. Is she a, quote, bad person, uh, a villain character? Yeah, I can accept that. But because Game of Thrones is so wonderfully painted in those shades of gray, I think there's sympathy for Cersei to be had. And maybe if we see her finally collapse... Under the weight of what she's carried, maybe there will be more widespread feelings of sympathy for her and a sense of redemption. You kind of see it a little bit early on in the show, about midway through the season's not popping in my brain right now, but we're, I believe, season two or at least three, uh, where her and Tyrion are talking. And Tyrion, it's one of his 
calmer, sweeter moments with Cersei, talking about, you know, how she is loyal to her children, and, and uh, Cersei kind of admits what's going on, what's been going on with Jaime, and, and all those, uh, all that kind of scandalous stuff. It is kind of a soft moment for Cersei, so I think you're right. I think he might be onto something. Whether or not we'll get that or not, whether Cersei's going to have time to cry in the final season, no, but uh, just for her character, for the arc, uh, there could be something to be uh, found in Cersei breaking down. Maybe, like Kevin said, a redemption. And maybe one of the shocking twists of the show is a softer, I don't say broken Cersei, but a Cersei more, uh, more, more f- full of, uh, of, uh, I don't want to say understanding, but a Cersei that is uh, just more on the good side, and maybe there'll be a, a turn in her character, a feeling of regret for some of the things she did, or if we know Cersei like the way we think we know her, she might just sip the wine and go down fighting. We shall see. You know, a couple of days ago here, we had a crazy idea put forth by our good friend Eric that, hey, what if the Night King speaks? What would that sound like? And what would he say? Now, we know that the White Walkers do have some sort of language in the books. It's a little more clear, a little more played out. They're, they're uh, you know, a little bit different in the books. But we know that. That's that's the case for a lot of things in Game of Thrones. But on the, the show, this Night King, different from the Night King, this Night King. What if he speaks? What if he explains what he wants? It sounded not silly at first, but it, like even Eric said during his initial call, hey, it is a wild idea. What if this happened? And it's picked up some speed here. Uh, it's picked up some momentum uh, on Daily Thrones of being an interesting idea. And Jeff's calling in to say that as well. Saying that you didn't know you wanted it, but maybe that's one of the things you do want in Season 8. I think it all comes down, again, as, as we said, what do we think the Night King wants? Just as viewers of the show, is he just a big, bad villain? No purpose to him other than I want to destroy things. Which, while possible, if there was a, a big budget studio uh, movie that's a three act mess with no development, but this is Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, George R. R. Martin, and even though this is a different character than what's presented in the books, the idea of the White Walkers, the idea of the others still coming down, that's from the books, that's from George's mind, so there's got to be something to it. And I'm not talking about other meanings and allegories for what that might be. I'm talking in story. I think there's got to be some purpose and reason. And like Jeff was saying, I echo the idea. Uh, if we're going to find out anything about what the Night King wants or what the White Walkers slash the others want, I don't want it necessarily to come from a book, from a maester, not even a red priest. I want it to come from them. I'd like it to come from the Night King. Crazy idea. The more I think about it, the more Jeff thinks about it, the more maybe some of you think about it. We might want that Night King to talk. So what happens when Daenerys Targaryen, Daenerys Stormborn, the unburnt, the breaker of chains, blah, 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 blah. What happens when the Mother of Dragons meets Gendry? I think it's going to happen. I think it should happen. And Eric's call suggesting that, hey, in season eight, we should see these type of meetings. Even Liam Cunningham and Davos has joked about wanting to see with Cersei. Eric talked about that from a recent interview with Liam. And there's been promises of characters 
we're very familiar with in places the characters aren't familiar with. Old faces, new places. And I love that idea. So it means we're going to get a lot of people that we haven't seen on screen together, which was part of the fun in season seven. Seeing John and Danny was, of course, the biggest one and seeing their reaction and then seeing uh, Jorah down in King's Landing or even Jorah north of the wall. Uh, seeing all these characters interacting, that was part of the fun of the Snow Team 6, all these all-stars together. I, I do like that, like that kind of stuff. Um, Daenerys Targaryen and Gendry is interesting. Just like Jon Snow and Gendry was interesting. I mean, this is uh, evoking memories and images of Ned and Robert. And yeah, Jon Snow might not be the son of Ned Stark, but in spirit he kind of is. So that was fun. And we saw how Danny reacted to Jon. In the end, it worked out. Oh, did it work out? But, I mean, it didn't work out right away. Daenerys does have an ego. I think so does John. He has a stubborn pride. But Daenerys has grown into herself and and deserves this ego, I think. But she has one. I think you kind of need to be to want to be a queen. And there's Gendry. By some, by some standards, would be maybe more of the rightful heir to the Iron Throne than Danny. I mean... John now kind of has that claim as well. It kind of depends on which way you want to go and which uh, line of secession you believe in more. We might have a war of three kings and two queens. Who knows? But Gendry and Danny, it would be not as important as Gendry and John for or, or, or Danny and John for sure. But it would be interesting because Robert Baratheon and the Targaryen family. Well, that's a complicated. Violent, not the best history. Danny and Gendry, I could see that in season eight. Might be something I want. Do you guys have something you want to see in season eight? Big moment, small moment. What's a resolution? That's part of the weekend discussion here on Daily Thrones, and the weekend edition rolls on. The weekend edition of Daily Thrones rolls on, and we're still looking towards Season 8 and trying to come up with some things that we want to see in Season 8. And a lot of that might have to do with resolutions. And I woke up this morning thinking of of one resolution out there that we don't talk about, but it's key, and it's stretched back all the way to Season 1, Episode 1. And then, I guess great Daily Thrones minds think alike. I logged in here tonight to continue broadcasting and Eric had a similar thought. Here's what he was thinking. Hey, Ken, another thing I think we need to see in Season 8, and I, I want to see in Season 8, is, you know, resolution to Theon's story. I mean, he's, he's a character that's been there since the very beginning, and he's been, he's been, he's had quite the journey. You know, it's been bad for him at times, and some of it was, of course, his own doing with bad choices. He made, but I feel we need to see resolution with him, and of course with Yara. And I, my personal opinion, what I think is going to happen, I think he's going to somehow sacrifice himself to save Yara. I do believe Theon Greyjoy will die in season eight, but he will do it to save his sister, and in, and in doing so, achieve that redemption he wants so badly. Oh, the Greyjoys! Oh, the Greyjoys! Uh, weird 
dark, disturbed family. But they've been here since literally the first moments of Game of Thrones. Season 1, Episode 1. We are introduced to Theon Greyjoy, though it, at least for me, took a little while to figure out exactly who he was and what he was and what he was doing there. A ward of Ned Stark. We had to get on board with that concept. I actually kind of liked Theon. And then he goes bad. But on the way there, season one, I, I'm like, he saves. He saves Bran from the Wildlings. Uh, I, I kind of understand the situation he's in. Uh, confusing, tough, not his choice. And then he obviously jumps off the, the rails. But I, I think people forget maybe, I don't know, the, the Grey Joys and Theon are, are often maligned uh, as characters. Alfie Allen does a great job. Uh, Gemma Whalen does a great job with the R. Grey Joy. Um, but I think it's in large part because when Theon turns and essentially turns his back on Rob Stark, not even completing the mission he was sent there to do, but just goes the other way. Uh, as it was most, most Game of Thrones characters, you can see why. You can see what Theon's looking for, the approval of his father, who's his real father. A lot of confusing issues there. But when he turns his back on Rob Stark, burns a letter that he was going to write, it hurts. Uh, to me, that's a, a sign that we did like Theon, that we sympathized with him, with him, or we at least found some value in him. So when he turns on Rob, it stings, and then he absolutely jumps the shark, not as a uh, as a character on the show, just like in story. He loses it. He's over, man. He is, you know, leads, takes over Winterfell. He burns the, the, the farm boy kid, ends up leading, I think, I put the death of, of Maester Lewin on Theon as well, even though it wasn't actually him. The whole situation just got so messy. And let's not forget Roderick Cassell. There's a lot going on. And Theon does, as Eric say, go on quite a journey. And it gets kind of... Well, push to not not the back, but to the side. All the reek stuff happens. It's weird and off-putting. It really, in the end, seems to set up Ramsey as a big bad guy more than uh, develop or move Theon's character forward. Than some of the controversial stuff, uh, focusing on the horror of Theon as opposed to the horror of Sansa on that wedding night with Ramsey, and uh, then Yara. I love the character of Yara. Euron shows up. It, 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 the Greyjoy storyline, sometimes, like I said, it, it's a little, not muddled, but just off on the side, and we forget about it. But I want resolution. I absolutely want to see something happen with the Greyjoys. I believe Yara is still alive, and I think there will be some sort of reckoning with Euron. I don't think that is a, a storyline that just drifts away. Euron versus his niece and nephew. I think there is a comeuppance there for Euron. And if, if, if the character of Euron has any comeuppance coming his way, I think it needs to come from his blood, from Greyjoy's. Yara grew. Yara, Yara is a character that, uh, with a weird, weird, creepy beginning, kind of grew into characters that we like. We like when she stands before Daenerys Targaryen flirting her way into a new agreement. We, I think, feel bad when Theon can't save her, though I think we all knew that would have cost Theon his life, just like his men agreed. Um, so I like Yara. I think she's alive, and I think there's something there, and I think she should take over the Greyjoys. That might be part of what emerges on the other side of the story. But for Theon, what is the, what is the proper resolution? 
at the end of season seven, he seems to be back on the upswing. Well, I agree with Eric. I think it has to be death. He committed too many sins in the past to not get away with them. Uh, I just, I, I don't want to see that. But I like him. I like Theon. And I, I, I think he brings something to the story. So, redemption through a sacrificial death. It makes a lot of sense. Poor Theon. But maybe he'd finally be free of that torture inside his soul. Poor, poor Theon. What do you guys think? What is a possible outcome? The Greyjoy storyline and Theon himself. He's been there since the beginning, but I don't think he survives. Let us know here on Daily Thrones. Thinking about Theon and his redemption and how that might happen and how I do believe it needs to come through death, it got me thinking about Davos. Theon's been with us since the beginning, so I think that character deserves some kind of resolution, something clear, something satisfied. Daunting task, indeed, for both George R. R. Martin and the producers of the show. Create these memorable characters, and we want to see them have good endings, even if it is in death. It got me thinking about Sir Davos Seaworth. Davos is a beloved character. I think, in general, I don't find a lot of people who don't... Uh, uh, like Davos, uh, he, he, there's no dislike there. You may not love him as much as other characters, but he's just such a good character. Liam Cunningham does an amazing job bringing just um, a heart, uh, a, a broken soul to that character, and a humble man that always finds himself in important moments and has the right words to say. It's one of the things I, I do love about the Davos character. He's He's got some great speeches, some great moments, and some great insight from a life spent wandering Westeros, Essos, and beyond, doing dirty deeds, done dirt cheap, but doing them because he kind of has to, and doing them with a heart of gold. So I want Davos to have a good resolution. I want him to live more than most other characters, I will say, I want Davos to live. He doesn't deserve some kind of death, even if it's in sacrificial martyrdom. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work for me that way. I really think Davos deserves some kind of reward, and that reward isn't necessarily money and a new family. He's still broken off over losing his sons and sons in the books. I just. I want him to ascend to an official place of power. I want him, more than anything, to be at peace. The resolution for Davos Seaworth is probably some sort of inner peace. He's always been in turmoil. He's been loyal to Stannis, but maybe Stannis wasn't always deserving of that loyalty. He's tried to do what is right, and that might include killing Melisandre. It didn't work out well. And he regrets that. But then he does right with Gendry and then brings him back. He consults. He advises. He battles. He stood by Jon Snow's side. was prepared to die for Jon. Try to broker peace between Mance and Stannis and Jon. Try to speak some sense into people. He was there. The Iron Bank to get them to believe in Stannis. I think he helped Lyanna Mormont believe in Jon Snow. 
But the whole time, seems to be he's still fighting with himself. He's still not sure if he belongs. Still not sure if he's doing right. Still not sure if he's worthy of anything. That's why I say I want him to have some sort of official seat of power. He was Stannis' hand to the king, but Stannis hadn't won any throne or crown yet. It's kind of like Tyrion. He's had some official power spots, but he's Danny's advisor. Danny's hand. But she's not an official queen of Westeros yet. If Westeros even is still standing, of course. But when the dust and the fire and the snow of season seven, as excuse me, season eight, well, that's right, we're already up to eight. When the, the dust and the fires and the snow finally settle on season eight, I want Davos to be able to look at himself, look at this world, look at things he has, and be okay with it. I don't want him to go in pain. I don't want him to sadly sulk off. I don't want him to take slings and arrows that he no longer has to take. I want Sir Davos Seaworth to end this story content. Hey, Ken, I, I totally hear you on Davos. And I said this a couple months ago. If I had to put money, if you know, we had, I had to pick one character who I feel is definitely going to survive season eight, he, he would be my choice. I remember, I think your answer was uh, Brienne of Tarf, which I think is another good choice. But um, I would definitely say Davos, and I agree with you. I, I, I want him to be content. But there's a little part of me, will he ever truly be content about the Shireen thing? As long as Melisandre's alive and out there, I'm not entirely sure. And you know what? And even if, let's say, he did kill her or John executed her, I still think deep in his heart that's just one of those things that's just, it's always going to be there. Not just Shireen, uh, what happened to her, but the fact that his friend, and at the end of the day, I truly believe Stannis and Davos were friends, that his friend in the end relented and allowed that to happen. When talking about Davos in the end of the series, and if he survives, which is uh, what Eric and I are talking about here, what we have talked about before, Eric's right, he had uh, selected him as one of the characters he thought would survive to the end. The question remains, can Davos survive emotionally? I, for some reason, and listening to Eric uh, break it down there on his uh, from his point of view, I flash to Sam and Frodo, the end of Return of the Gang. Yes, that's right, the 12 false false finish endings, but I actually love every one of them, and I'm glad Peter Jackson put those in the movie and uh, carried them uh, from the book to, book to the theaters there. I think Frodo is an example of surviving, being victorious, doing what you're supposed to do, doing your job, Facing down and fulfilling your destiny, but still kind of being a casualty of war and a casualty of the story. I could see that happening with, say, a Jon Snow, maybe an Arya, someone uh, more called to greatness. With Davos, he is kind of a he's kind of a Sam, Samwise Gamgee. He is the gardener to Stannis's king, the Onion Knight. He is the second-hand advisor, and be. Because of that, 
it's it's a different ending for him and, and it's a different kind of pain being there to support somebody to hopefully fulfill their destiny and watch it go wrong or watch them make decisions. Think Sam and Frodo when Frodo sent him away. When Frodo, uh, under the influence of the ring, refused to believe Sam about Gollum. There's many instances where Stannis Baratheon just did not believe Davos, refused to believe, under the influence of a magical power, if you will, but always came back to him. Just in this case, didn't come back to him in the end. And it cost Davos greatly with the loss of Shireen, uh, an adopted daughter in a way, uh, not more than just a friend. Uh, and, and he gave right, Eric, he loses a friend in Stannis as well. So I do think Davos is, has a good chance to survive this all. It, it doesn't make sense to me that he goes out as a martyr or just dies in the field of battle. There's got to be something more to this character. And he is he's a point of view character in the book. So he goes on. He goes on to tell the story. Uh, he goes on to carry the lessons. And maybe other people like John and Danny and maybe Arya don't survive or go west of west and leave. Go to the Grey Havens, if you will. But Davos remains to carry the burden. So he might be on the victorious side, but he'll always have that hole in his soul for the loss of Shireen, for the loss of Stannis, for what could have been, for the loss of his son, let's not forget. And the battle inside Davos is if he can accept it all, if he can move past it. That's why I want Davos, Davos to find some sort of contentment. But I don't know if he can. And he is the type of character, crusty on the outside, but warm and gooey in the center. He will always have a scar in his heart for the, all these losses. For all these losses. He might be able to justify in his brain Stannis dying but Shireen no Mathos he'll always wish he had done more or kept him out of the fight or led him to a different life he'll always have that burden can he put it aside can he go and live his life and have his own part in the story going forward like Sam at the end of Return of the King and will the death of Melisandre ease him in any way? Will it ease him if he's the one that does it? There'll be some there'll be some kind of justification in that happening. But I don't think it will actually ease Davos. His heavy heart will carry him well beyond the story. If he survives. And really, the more you think about it, I think Davos is a top five character to survive. A top five safe bet to see the other side of all of this. What do you guys think? Can Davos mend that heavy, broken heart? Ross, you asked the other day with the secondary characters what happens to the Night Watch. Well, here's what I think happens. Uh, the wall was breached at one extreme end. Uh, some of the Night, night Watch, uh, using ravens and, and uh, direct direct line, will be running the length of the wall, alerting uh, the other the other castles along the way that the breach has actually happened, and then doing an end-run sweep to gather up any village or or, or small uh, hovel to try, to try to drive everybody as far as much as they can into Winterfell. Now, the irony is that we're going to lose some of the Night Watchmen to the Night King. 
but the black cloaks will do their job in protecting as many people as possible, thereby getting a net win for actual bodies. And that is what we're talking about, a net win of a physically living people against the army of the dead. All concentrated at Winterfeld for the siege at Winterfeld. Thanks again. When looking at Season 8 and what are the little things we want in Season 8 and what are some of the resolutions, macro or micro, I, I think it's interesting to go back to the Night's Watch discussion and how they factor in. There are, not counting the Free Folk version of the Night's Watch, which is, uh, was manning East Watch, but what's left at Castle Black, what Ed Tollett is leading, who who is left, the, the numbers, I mean, what, do we look at 50, less than 50? It's not impressive. But I agree with Kevin's breakdown of how they might still factor in. I love the idea of Winterfell being a rallying point. We keep talking about the Siege of Winterfell here on Daily Thrones as, as if it's gospel it's going to happen, but it it's not. At least not yet. We don't know. And I'm avoiding any on-set spoilers. Anything that emerges in on the internet of, uh, we saw this, uh, Game of Thrones Season 8, I don't click on it. So I don't know. But it just makes sense. Uh, we keep talking about that. It just makes sense that the Night King is coming down. Uh, Carhold, uh, the, the Last Hearth, all those kind of castles. I think even the Dreadfort would be in the marching path there. All of those... I imagine will fall, but Winterfell has a chance of surviving. And this idea of what is left of the Night's Watch, the resolution for them, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be an end. But I, I think there is some resolution there, that these men that were on the wall for a purpose for thousands and thousands of years failed in a way failed over time it was a long failure a breakdown from within a breakdown from westeros not supporting them too mind you but here at the end they might have one final surge whatever is left of them to save as kevin says many people as possible to get living breathing human bodies down in winterfell or maybe even below to try to fight the night king we know they can take out some whites on the way down now doesn't seem like the Night King's worried about losing members of his army. He'll make more. But time, buying time, and buying people could be the last stand for the Night's Watch and a fulfilling of their oath. As we bring the weekend edition of Daily Thrones to a close, let's try to think of happy things. Let's try to think of happy thoughts. We're looking towards season eight a lot. That's what we've been doing this week, especially here in the weekend edition. What are those little moments that we want? Resolutions for characters and storylines and just the way it works out in Game of Thrones. It's going to be a little dark. Might at times be a little depressing. But... There are, is that word, that phrase, a bittersweet and a bittersweet ending that hangs over everything I discuss about season eight because that's what we've heard George R. R. Martin himself describe what the end of the show is. We've heard some rumblings of, oh, it's amazing, oh, it's satisfying, oh, you won't believe it. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, those are words, buzzwords from the set and from the production offices and writing offices that I can certainly believe, right? I mean, it would make sense. What else are they going to say and what else will the ending be? I imagine it's going to be 
pretty, pretty good, as Larry David would say. But what, if any, are going to be the happy parts of this ending? Bittersweet to me means, ooh, I'm crying, but I'm happy. I'm crying, but I'm smiling. Crying, but that makes sense. What are the happy parts? We talked about maybe one last wedding, Brian and Jamie. Could it be John and Danny sticking with this whole love thing despite what we know about them? Could it be Aria uh, fulfilling a lot of her prophecies and destinies, what she's supposed to do in finding some sort of peace? Davos, as we've been talking about, finding peace. What are the joys? What will happen when the show finally ends? Will Cersei break down? Not die, but survive and realize she just had to give back a little love and she'd be okay. Are there hugs at the end of this show? Is Viserion saved, reanimated as a brand new living dragon, maybe thanks to some magic from the children of the forest or Bran or the old gods? What are the happy endings that might exist at the end? of A Song of Ice and Fire at the end of Game of Thrones. Let's talk about that this coming week and a whole lot more. Guys, you know the drill. Just call in here on Anchor. Put a call up. I will get the uh, uh, get your thought starter out there, get your question out there, get your theory out there. We also have the daily podcast on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Google Play is there as well. We are still going strong here, even though Season 8 is a long way away. That's Daily Thrones, the weekend edition. See you tomorrow.